This is the Volleyball Coaching Wizards podcast, covering everything coaching. Motivated and inspired by interviews and conversations with some of the world's great volleyball coaches. To learn more about the project, visit VolleyballCoachingWizards.com. Now here are your hosts, John Foreman and Mark Levijou. Welcome to episode 26 of the podcast. This time around, we've got an excerpt that Mark is going to read from an interview Mark did a while back with a longtime German coach. Um, this interview was actually conducted in German, um, so Mark is reading out the English transcription and translation of what was said. You'll find some interesting themes that relate no matter what culture or what language, um, having to do with kind of a family aspect of, of coaching and volleyball and relationships between coaches and players. So hopefully uh, you'll enjoy it and get a lot out of it. On with the show. Okay, so the Papak Yorgi inter- interview is a it's a really interesting interview, <laughs> like so many of them are. But uh, he's a he's a real character, and uh, he's not afraid to call a spade a spade. Or we would say that some somehow a little bit differently in uh, in Australian English. But uh, but he uh, he talks a, a lot about different coaches and and so on. But he had one uh, one theme that came up a couple of times. Um, one in the context of him as a coach, and one in the context of him as a coach educator, which was his major viable role over the years. And the the first one is he coached uh, professionally for a short period of time, so three or four years, and won the German championship. And uh, he was re- recalling a conversation that he had with his star player uh, 10 years after the um, after they finished working together. And uh, the, co- the player who uh, by that time had become a doctor uh, said to him, uh, Papa, because Papa Georgiou, his nickname was Papa, uh, which oddly also fit his personality because he was like a Papa to so many people. Um, Papa, you know what I always admired about you is the fact that you treated all the players equally and you loved us all. And that's uh, that's one, that's a quote, uh, him working as a, um, as a coach. And then later in the, the interview, he says, I always told my students to be a successful coach, it's not about choosing the right methodology and a very good training. First and foremost, the coach, the personality plays an important role. And he goes on to then to to discuss a particular German coach who he doesn't name um, that his that he visited with his students, and the students at the end commented on his methodology. Um, and he replied, don't worry about his methodology. Uh, his personality is more important. And it brings up a part of coaching that we, we sometimes gloss over in coach education, but, but we don't talk about it very often, which is the, the leadership part of it, the personality part of it. We're, we're constantly searching for drill ideas or X's and O's or things like that. But so much of coaching is, if not all of it, is about uh, working with people, relating to people, and, and how you get those guys 
and girls and kids to work together. Right. Um, I, I, I find the that first part of it interesting. You all treat you treat it as all equally. Um, it kind of struck me as being, just to your point about his nickname being Papa, it struck me as being very parental. Yes, yes, it it it's kind of was like that, and and uh, I met him at a coach education um, at an FIVB course when he was a uh, he was running an FIVB course, and and uh, you know straight away he, he the way that he talks to you and the way that you relate to him is 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 as that father father figure, and uh, when I've never met anybody. Uh, who who was a coach? Who was coached by him, or who learned to coach under him? Who uh, who said anything bad about him? Frankly, now okay, I guess how to phrase this question? You you've been attempting <laughs> in most of the interviews that you've done, at least within the last six months, of trying to to get from the interviewee their well, at least those who have children, you know, how they compare parenting and coaching and the overlaps and how one impacts the other. So, yeah. I mean, do you see any particular you know, tie-ins here with Papa? Is he a parent? Yes, he is a parent. Um, he has grown. Oh, he's, he's in his seventies now, and he's retired, so he has he has grown children. Ooh, that's a good question, John. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's really that's really difficult for me to answer because I I didn't know him in the context of my being a parent, um, so I wasn't thinking about it in those terms. Um, Maybe, maybe that's what it is. Maybe that, uh, uh, maybe that's the the overlap. That the the quote about loving all the players, um, you love all your children, and because you love them, you correct them, and sometimes you can be harsh with them, or hard with them. Harsh is not is not right, and because you love them, they don't take it badly. Um, yeah, maybe he was a parent to, to his players uh, at, at some unconscious level. That's a really interesting question. Yeah, and, and well, kind of uh, the other thing that I thought of when you were reading that stuff off was the saying, and I don't know who's credited with saying this, but I've heard it a few times. They don't know, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah, this one gets bandied around a lot. Uh, Pat Summit, I think I might have heard that attributed to Pat Summit, the women's basketball coach. Okay. Um, but yeah, that sounds kind of like what Papa was about. Yeah. Relationship first, and then everything else comes after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't that wasn't the only part of his coaching, of course, because. If in his interview he goes through why why he had so such success with professional teams and and uh, because it was he was the first coach in Germany essentially to to do video analysis to do actually study the the opponents play and to prepare tactics and and game plans to play against them so uh, 
as a as a coach, he certainly didn't undervalue the the X's and O's and uh, the the tactical play, but. Uh, he certainly valued the the other stuff uh, at least as much. The idea of not treating players equally, but treating players equitably. <laughs> yeah, this one that uh, that that gets brought up uh, a lot that that uh, that equal is not necessarily fair, and fair is not necessarily equal, and, and uh, yes. Yeah, he the way he describes it was is equal, um, but other coaches who are successful have um, talk about taking into account individuals and and also in a sense the the position of a player in the team that uh, that you and the time of the season being an important one, so that you can't uh, just have fixed rules that you. That you follow at all costs in every situation, and um, uh, my sense is, though, without having been there and without being able to ask the the player a follow up question, was that uh, that uh, Public Yogi didn't have fixed rules for different things that he that he re- reacted each time in a in a unique way, uh, while keeping the good of the team and the good of the of the players at the forefront. Well, that's one of the one of the things that Wooden has talked about in terms of how he went from having many rules to eventually having very few rules. Yeah. Because of the realization of the constraints that that puts you under. Yeah. Yes, and I I know of uh, uh, of a coach, a national team coach, who uh, was in a very difficult situation in a lead up to an, to an Olympics where they had some fixed team rules. They were forced to act on the fixed team rules. Um, but the, there was been some suggestion that it might have cost them uh, at least the chance to play for a medal by causing such disruption in the team. Right. And, and kind of the other side of that is the players need to realize that we said equitable and fair, you know, or, or equal and fair may not be the same thing, um, mm-hmm. because, and I think Kathy DeBoer talked about this in her book about gender. It's just that, especially on female teams, there's there's a strong sense of it needs to be fair, and if people are treated differently, then there might be the sense that that actually isn't fair in some fashion or another. Yeah, but if the if the players understand that, okay, we're not treating everybody equally here because not everybody is the same person. Yeah, we're, we're treating them in the context of whatever the issue might happen to be, and trying to find the right solution rather than as we were just talking about, kind of broad brushing everybody into the same category. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think when we have that. When we talk about those kinds of topics, I think of uh, Phil Jackson and some stories of Phil Jackson, particularly with uh, with Dennis Rodman, for example. That um, uh, when Dennis Rodman came to the Bulls, he had a reputation for being a loose cannon. He never came to practice on time. He was 
Uh, he was late and disruptive and um, Phil Jackson's methodology for handling it was to uh, quietly fine him and that, that was all or, not, or to ignore it so that the first week you know, Dennis Rodman would walk in his, to practice customarily three minutes late just to be late, just to be disruptive discovered that it wasn't disruptive at all, that nobody cared or paid attention. And from that time on, uh, essentially uh, came to practice on time. And and uh, Phil also writes in, in one or all or some of his many books covering the same topic, that, uh, that he would have small fines for, for little uh, infractions of team rules, but that the players always had a opportunity to win the fines back with uh, with some kind of game or free throws or you know fifty dollars for being late for practice but if you make eight out of ten free throws you you know you, you get your money back and and uh, it it always strikes me as being a good way to 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 deal with those situations by not making a big deal of them and and somehow we've circled back to being a parent, which is uh, at least my view of parenting and my experience of parenting is that the more the bigger deal you make of something, the bigger deal it becomes. The first the first time I remember uh, remember my son the first time he he ate an olive or something like that when he was six months old. The first time he could eat solid food and he put an olive in his mouth. And he looked at me to see what his reaction should be. And and I didn't react. So he chewed it and said, mm, oh, I like olives. I'm going to eat olives from now on. And the same happens the first time he, <laughs> maybe not the first time, but the first time he, he bangs his head on something and he looks around to see, oh, I, that's unusual. I don't know what's supposed to happen there. And if... If I or you know, don't react, then okay, that's that's life. It just goes on. It hurts a little bit, and I have the similar experiences in teams. If if you make a big deal of something, it becomes a big deal, and a lot of small little things that happen inside the team are, uh, are just somebody having a bad day, uh, an accident, uh, a misunderstanding, or just. You know some some guy's personality, and and it blows over in five minutes or ten minutes or one day, and uh, and you never you never actually have to respond to it. The response is to uh, is to just be quiet and let it pass. Right, right. And um, I'm reminded of a of a couple of things. One was our discussion uh, about kind of the psychology of training that we did with, uh, you know, in regards to Anders Christensen mm-hmm. and how, you know, the more you talk about something, the more inherently exactly. teams are going to focus on it for yep. better or for worse. Yes. Um, and, and the other thing was, uh, and this goes back to the parenting side of it, is, you know, John Dunning, when I had a chance to just ask him some interview questions at an art of coaching clinic, mm-hmm. talking about being a parent and what he, he, you know, how it changed his coaching. And, and it just came down to, you know, kind of like with Papa, how, how he treated people. Yeah. And 
kind of understanding the impact of, of what you're doing. And oh wow, oh wow. <laughs> oh no, it's a that's a one side of it I haven't I hadn't considered. All right, there you go. Although having said that, I think that one of the one of the points for me, the parenting points is is when you when you have a child, then it improves your empathy, your level of empathy, your ability to empathize because the um, the the when the kid's born and until well my son's three now, until at least now, he's not able to communicate all of his wants and needs, at least verbally, so in a way that you can understand them. So he communicates them. It's just you have to figure out his language. So you're paying attention to what's around what's around him, how he's reacting to the environment. You're paying attention to, you know, uh, has he eaten? Because if he hasn't eaten for four hours and he's screaming, then probably he's hungry. If he ate 10 minutes ago, Okay, he's not screaming because he's hungry. He's screaming because of something else. And um, uh, I, I think, at a personal level, it made me more aware of of, uh, of feelings and how they interacted with the environment and um, and things like that. So maybe that's maybe that's the same point that John Dunning was talking about. Well, I couldn't. I mean, this is. Perhaps a comically harsh reaction, <laughs> but I couldn't help but think of it, as you were saying that stuff. It's like, oh, we should think of our players as toddlers as we try to figure out you know, their, their, their methods of communication, of nonverbal communication. But I mean, there's there's a point to that. I mean, everybody, everybody we come across, whether it's in coaching or not, is going to have ways of communicating with us that are nonverbal whether it's body language or facial expression or whatever, that we have to learn how to pick up on. And, and a lot of that is in context. And we yes. have to be able to make use of that information to figure out how we're going to react to that person. Yes. In, in that moment or in a broader scheme of, you know, in dynamics or relationships or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, the empathy, like you say, the empathy part of things is, is certainly important. You kind of have to need to be able to look at things from other people's perspective. I think when you say that we have to treat people as toddlers or that what what was it ex that you exactly said? <laughs> We'd have to go back and rewind the case, but, but to think of to I think of your players as toddlers. <laughs> and along those lines, yeah. <laughs> I th I think that you're absolutely right, but I don't but not in the sense that the players are toddlers because, like you said, people are like that all the time. They, they have reactions, they have body language, they have a lot of different ways to communicate. You're communicating all of the time in some way mm -hmm. and it's just that we, once we are not talking to toddlers, stop paying attention to those things because we assume that everybody... Um, can speak for themselves. Can talk about what they're they're talking, uh, what they need. Maybe. Maybe. Well, no, I think that's a legitimate comment. If we do start to assume that if 
if there's something going on, you're going to be told about it in some fashion. Yeah. Uh, which is clearly not the case. Uh, and, and a lot of times when things do get talked about, they're not talked about in a direct manner. Yes. So you still have to figure it out. Yep, yep. I mean, there's a lot of passive-aggressive type stuff that happens in group situations where, you know, somebody's not happy about something or is complaining about something, but they're not doing it in a way that you, the coach, gets it directly. You have to kind of suss it out in a Mm -hmm. roundabout sort of way, potentially by talking to other people or looking at how two players on the court are looking at each other or communicating with each other or not communicating with each other. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those, every year is a little bit different. Every group of players is a little bit different, even if they're the same players from the season before. Well, everybody's, every, every time you have a new player in a group you, or every time you change players, the players, each player's position in the group changes. So maybe somebody goes up in the hierarchy one spot or down in the hierarchy one spot or uh, just the uh, your best friend's not there. So it's, you know, then you, you change your interaction with people because you don't have the mouthpiece or every time you change a, a person, it changes the, the whole dynamic of the group and people have to then find their new position in that group and and that's what i'm going through in this season and uh, you know we're about six or seven weeks in and have six new guys i think six old guys six new guys and and it's a little bit like that the new guys are searching for their position the old guys had a position at least as it related to each other so they're they're sort of wandering around in there as well and um uh and it's a process that takes time and and it doesn't stop evolving never things happen over the course of a season which change people's roles as you say positions within the hierarchy could be injuries could be illness could be player development or lack of development Mm -hmm. so it's you know we can't we can't I don't want to say rest on a roll because that's probably not exactly the best way to think about it, but we can't stop looking at these these dynamics and these relationships as the season progresses. No, they don't stop. It's very different at the end of the year than it was at the beginning. Yep. Absolutely. That's the joy of coaching. (laughs) The joy of coaching. That's a great way of putting it. Um, going back to what you were saying about Daniel and, and the the value of not reacting and not saying anything, uh, I recently just started reading um, the Inner Game of Tennis. Oh yeah, you haven't read it before? No, no, I got a copy of it from the women's soccer coach here in the Western. Um, okay, it's been sitting in my bag for months, but I finally got around to cracking it open the other day. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he talks about very early on is the lesson that he learned that his students, tennis players obviously, were actually learning better when he wasn't saying as much. Yeah. He would kind of show them and then, you know, let them figure out from what they saw how to apply what he was trying to get them to do. And, you know, he, he talked about an experiment where he demonstrated a forehand 
ten times or whatever, and told the guy, okay, you know, what do you think? You know, let's go out and do it. And the guy immediately talks about how, you know, I was looking at your feet. And so, you know, has the guy do however many forehand strokes, and he notices the one thing the guy talked about to him that he didn't actually say anything about, but the, 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 the student said, you know, I was, I was watching your feet. That was the one thing that he didn't do right. Got the, yeah. you know, he got his, his arm motion right. He got the, the movement of the racket right and all that. But he didn't move his feet until he, you know, the, the coach kind of just points at his feet. Doesn't say anything, just points at his feet. And the guy goes, oh, yeah. Um, and, he, you know, and he talks about the, the ego side of that where you, know, you feel like as a coach that you have to say things. That that's, you know, that's inherent in your job. And then if you're not saying things and they're learning without you saying things, then somehow you're lesser as a result. Um, I don't think that's a – I part of it that might be an ego thing, but it's part of coach education. That's the way – it's what you learn about being a coach. You learn that you have to be – you have to be active. You have you have to be giving feedback. You have to be telling the players what to do. You have to be screaming at them if they're not doing anything. And if you don't do any of those things, observers think that you're not working. I've written about this stuff before. If you don't take a time out, people think that you're doing a bad job of being a coach. Yeah. If you don't take a time out, when uh, people don't rant and rave if he's not playing well. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's it's so deeply embedded into the culture of sport and the culture of coaching that um, you know, I think it's essentially impossible at this point to change it. But this is why that book in a game of tennis resonated a lot in a in a niche so that it's over 40 years old now. And it's a. It's a great book. I, I have a friend. It's the only coach education that he ever did was was to read that book. He never learned. He never did anything on team dynamics or anything like that. He just read that book through once, and he was a coach, and he was a real coach. And in the meantime, a lot of those points, like the one about not speaking, that that uh, speaking too little is better than speaking too much. For example, is uh, you know they've been researched and and proven to be facts. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's not say facts, but uh, they, been it's been supported by research. There you go. So it's um, you know it's a it's it's interesting stuff. Well, some, I read something recently, and this was also based on research that. Coaches talk twice as much as they think they actually do. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. We talked about it as a staff here at Midwestern, and we're just kind of laughing about it. Because <laughs> you kind of look back and you go, oh, yeah, I guess, yeah, like, all right. <laughs> I can see how that might be the case. Yeah. And I intentionally try not to talk. Um, but that's part that's part of the that pressure. Right that you, that's part of the pressure that you have to talk. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember when I was coaching at Brown, there were the players, and this was obviously, I was a younger coach at this point, but the players were sure that I only ever saw them when they make mistakes. 
Because that would be the time I'd be talking to them. You know, it wasn't entirely true, but, you know, it was one of those learning experiences along the way. Okay, i got to make sure that I'm not just giving them feedback when I see them, you know, make an error. <laughs> got to kind of balance it out so they're not completely paranoid all the time. But I'm working with them. It, that's not part that's not your that's not because of you I've had the opposite thing happen where, where, I, where I've given players compliments and they don't they didn't understand the compliment like I've said I've said that they've done something well and they couldn't comprehend because they, they're searching I, the coach is speaking to me where did I make the error I don't remember making the error he's saying good job but is he being sarcastic or I don't understand uh, when I first came to Europe, that that happened a lot. The the, the players just just couldn't comprehend that I would speak to them about something that was good. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, the, that, that I guess partially explains an experience that I had when I was in England, and I think I was doing the level three course for volleyball England, and it was very much the mixed nationality group, which is what you get in England in volleyball circles anyway. And as part of it, we're all required to do as either pairs or maybe trios our own, say, 40-minute or hour-long training bit where mm-hmm. we put the rest of the class through some sort of set of activities. Yeah. And in, in the feedback afterwards, I had, uh, it was either a Slovenian or a Slovakian coach say to me, even if I didn't know where you were from, I would have known that you were an American coach. And I had no idea what that meant at the time. Yeah. And it wasn't until, um, uh, what's, what's the, the former Potsdam coach now? Uh, Alberto Salamone. It wasn't until I was hanging out with Alberto and I, and I, I kind of talked with him about that and what is the reputation of American coaches. And he said, oh, it's, it's being very positive, mm-hmm. and so I kind of reflected on that. Like, okay, now now I see it. I can I can understand it. But for a long time, I was just like, what in the world is this guy talking about? I have no idea what an American coach is, because yeah, obviously yeah. that's where I came from. And con and conversely, American players are used to coaches who are positive, right? And uh, don't always cope well with a European situation where uh, there can be negativity, and not necessarily not from the coach, but um, uh, Ke- Kevin Barnett in the Net Live always makes jokes about uh, playing in Europe and there being a panic after every loss from the from the fans and the club and and everyone. And no, <laughs> he's he's not he's not really exaggerating. He's not exaggerating. Well, and I think it depends on the situation, but yeah, I think maybe if he came from a, a background of basketball. I was just about to say that. <laughs> where in the states, the you know, obviously the stakes are considered to be much higher. Then perhaps it would have been a different sort of situation. Yeah. I mean, even sometimes in baseball, which is a ridiculously long season, people get yeah. riled up about a single game somewhere along the way early in the year. Um, and, and actually, um, I listened to a podcast done by the the guys on the administration side and the marketing side of the New England Revolution, the, the soccer team uh, mm-hmm. around Boston. And, you know, they kind of make jokes about 
is it is it time to hit the panic button? You know, kind of early in the season, and you haven't even played like a third of your, maybe not even a quarter of your matches. Should we hit the panic <laughs> button now? <laughs> and, you know, sometimes they actually mean it. It's like, okay, all right, things are not going the way they should. Maybe, maybe, yeah. just maybe, we should get worried. But it's a it's a running joke about just how how sensitive people get after even the first match of the year. All right, we're freaking out because it didn't go exactly as the way we were, we were like. But yes. Again, we digress. <laughs> uh, I actually think if we if we listen back on this, we've wandered less far than we have on some other occasions. I think you're probably right. I think the the theme basically from the the two quotes from the Papa Giorgi interview are that. Uh, that the leadership and personal qualities of the coach are at least as important as the technical methodological qualities of the coach. And uh, I think we've mostly explored why and how that is with digressions into parenthood, with digressions into professional sport, our own experiences. I think that might have just been your best conclusion to a podcast ever. Well, I think I've mostly tried to avoid giving conclusions and left that up to you, so. I'll see you now we can call it around. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For show notes and more, visit volleyballcoachingwizards.com backslash podcast. Got an idea for a future episode or want to ask a question? Send an email to podcast at volleyballcoachingwizards.com.